I think the progress we make here is when everyone starts to see the value of the of the of a diverse space and and realizing that uh, if I am of you know if I'm the white majority and my kids do not have this diverse perspective, that's that's my student being underserved. And welcome, ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, guys, gals, and non-binary pals to another episode of All the Above, the show that gives you an unstandardized take on education. I'm Jeffrey Garrett, one of your co-hosts, and I've been a middle and high school principal and a high school social studies teacher. And as always, I'm joined by... What up, family? It's Manuel Rustin, your favorite teacher's favorite teacher. I'm a high school history teacher here in the Los Angeles area. I am currently almost finished with my 13th year in the classroom. And this here, of course, is all the above. Your home for news and analysis of all matters pertaining to our world of education. And Jeff, I am not counting down to the finish line. I am not. But it is May. And May means we are almost at the finish line. It's prom season for those of us who teach high schoolers. It's... um, field trip season maybe for middle schoolers I at least I remember being in middle school and like May was when we had our big fun field trips at the end of the year um and it's going to be commencement season pretty soon unless you're on the east coast in which case apologies you got like two more full months and I'm sorry for that I'm sorry for the triggering introduction today but it is what it is man Yes, um, and well, that that uh, is very true. Empathy to all my New York City educators who who are still going till June twenty fifth or whatever ungodly Ouch. date the end of the school year is uh, in New York City right now. But also, I want to say, man, well, I believe you just said a minute ago that this was the approaching the end of your thirteenth year in uh, education. Did I say thirteenth? I meant eighteenth. I was about to say, I think unless you meant 13 plus five, uh, I was doing the math in my head because because we're on the same year. I was like, really? Is that, has our career been that short? Man, um, so no, 13 was a long time ago, man. <laughs> yes. Congratulations almost on uh, finishing um, year 18. We're, we're getting ready to hit that 20 year point, man, which is wild to wild to think about. So. Yeah. Um, and actually, I guess as I think about it, I have worked in education in one form or another as of this year for 20 years, which is crazy because I began my career as a college admissions officer. Uh, so, I, I, you know, it counts in the larger sphere of education, I would say. But um, anyways, all that to say, yes, May is a, a joyous month in many ways in schools. And uh, it's that it's also a tiring, exhausting month, right? Because you're like sprinting to the finish line. So, um, you know, happy May, everyone. Happy spring. I hope uh, those April showers are bringing May flowers uh, in many communities across the country. Yeah, man. I remember showers. I remember when it used to actually rain in California back in my childhood. <laughs> Miss those uh, days. Miss mm. those days. Well, Jeff, here we are with another full episode, jam-packed with a lot of dopeness. So, Jeff, talk to us. What's on the agenda for today? Well, Manuel, uh, we got a good one for everybody, as usual. Uh, Streak is alive and well, um, and I'm happy and excited to say we got not one, but two amazing dope guests coming to join all the above today. And I'm super excited because not only do we have incredible educators, not only do we have incredible educators uh, who are going to talk to us about pipelines and systems for recruiting and retaining 
educators of color, but we have um, two amazing, dope black educators to have this conversation who are coming to us from my home state of Minnesota. Uh, so shout out to Minneapolis and St. Paul, going to be well represented um, on the show today. And one of whom is a uh, an old friend I first met in college. Um, so it's a little bit of a reunion uh, episode uh, for me as well. We have two amazing people coming on. Uh, well, we have Makisha Nation, who is the executive director of Teach for America uh, Twin Cities. And we have James Barnett, who is the executive director of Teach Minnesota, um, which is an organization that works with TNTP to help recruit, retain, create pipelines for um, educators of color and support educator diversity in Minnesota. Um, and I will venture to say, Manuel, that I bet many people out there, when you think about interesting stuff that's happening to uh, to kind of bring about educator diversity or increase educator diversity, most people aren't thinking about Minnesota, probably at the top of their list. But there's some really interesting work happening, and um, Minnesota is also uh, a fascinating case study uh, when we think about the huge disparities and gaps between our overwhelmingly uh, students of color population among our students versus our overwhelmingly white population of teachers, administrators, etc. So fascinating discussion happening today. Stick around, folks. You definitely don't want to miss it. Yeah, so Minnesota dopeness in the building. And folks, it is Minneapolis, not Minneapolis, as I learned from <laughs> my fellow co-hosts of all the above. Uh-huh, uh-huh. Yeah. All right, folks. But up first, of course, we have our Do Now, where we're going to take a look at some recent stories, recent headlines in the world of education. Today's stories have to do with um, cheating and paying for college. Mm. Good stuff. Stay tuned. Do Now, up next. All right, folks, it's time for today's Do Now. Jeff, what do we have for the Do Now today? Well, Manuel, it is your favorite way uh, that we do the Do Now. Everybody knows I tend to be most partial to the lexicon, but I believe your favorite way of doing the Do Now is the report card. It's time to give out some grades and, um, you know, let people know that even though it's, you know, just four weeks into the semester that you already failed and there's nothing you can do about it. Hey, we talk about a lot of controversial things on the show, Jeff, but one thing that is not controversial, not problematic at all, is grading and how people grade. And um, nothing, <laughs> nothing controversial, nothing inequitable happening there, Jeff. It's just, it's just, just letters. And today's grade, we're going to start with um, the classic, the classic grade of a C. Mm, nice. The good old college try C. Uh, you know, good enough to stay out of trouble. Bad enough to not get anything useful <laughs> by getting that grade. <laughs> so good old C. That is true. The C is the path towards slipping through and getting by with nobody celebrating you or pulling you aside asking what's happening. It's um that's that's worth a conversation one day, Jeff. Our our quote unquote C students out there and what attentions what attention they ever receive from the school system. But in this case, Jeff, the C stands for Cheaters. We're talking mm. about academic dishonesty here, Jeff. Wow. Okay. Um, lay it on us. Yeah, man. I don't. I don't know if you're aware of this, Jeff, but sometimes college students, in particular, um, don't put forth work that represents their best effort and their own 
honest efforts. And this story comes to us by way of the Harvard Graduate School of Education's Usable Knowledge website. This story is written by Emily Bordreau, and she's talking about research done by Wendy Fishman, who teamed up with professor and developmental psychologist Howard Gardner on a new book called The Real World of College, What Higher Education Is and What It Can Be. And this book is based on a 10-year study of higher education. And one important element of the book is this idea that academic dishonesty looms large on college campuses with students openly acknowledging it, yet almost never reporting it as an important problem that they should try to address. Now, researcher Wendy Fishman says that part of what contributes to this mindset that academic dishonesty is okay is the fact that at least through her hundreds of pages of interviews that were conducted, uh, students used I statements 11 times more than they used we statements. And she says that this suggests that students tend to put themselves and their own success over a sense of communal responsibility. Students also tend to view a college degree as a transaction and college as a place to achieve and build a resume so that they could earn and get a good job after graduation. Now, uh, Fishman says that administrators, faculty, and other adults can do more to to cultivate that sense of responsibility to the campus community and to society as a whole. So for combating uh, students' propensity to towards academic dishonesty, uh, Fishman says that for one, uh, faculty and administrators can start to put ethics front and center and that they could have more frequent frequent conversations with students and discuss the purpose and value of college. But she does say that no matter what rules and regulations are put into place to monitor cheating, students will always find a way around it. So that means we have to address students' view of college and help them see the value of it as something more than just a simple transaction. So Jeff, what are your thoughts here about this uh, story about academic dishonesty in the college classes? Yeah. Man, well, I so I have two primary thoughts about this. On the one hand, I'm like, man, you know, as an educator, there's sort of a purist inside me that does believe on some level that academic dishonesty is kind of a core moral transgression in school that like definitely needs to be addressed, right? Because if you're if you're not doing your work, like that's the that's sort of the one of the fundamental integrities of school, right? Is that like the work you're doing is your work. The other maybe fundamental integrity is like how we interact in this space, right? It gets to like the values of like equity and justice for all kind of a thing, right? And so if those things are being violated, it's like, well, really, what are we doing here then, right? Like if you're just transactionally paying for a diploma, then like, why don't we just, why can't you just go online and buy a diploma, right? Um, Mm. So now I don't want to go too far down that road because I think it's probably overblown from the standpoint of like, even if there is a fair amount of relatively low level cheating, I don't know that I've seen any data that says like, well, people are, are like cheating on their medical board exams. So we're getting doctors who don't actually have specialty in their, you know, in, in their field or we're getting engineers who can only build buildings that fall over or, you know, or I guess I should say architects, you know, to do that or engineers who can only build bridges that won't stand up or, you know, or these sorts of things, right? I don't see evidence of that happening. So I feel like, eh, maybe it's not as big of a deal um, as we're saying. I will say though, Manuel, that this to me does feel like one of those ways in which the attitudes, the behaviors of students are mirroring the messages that we actually send to them about why college is important. 
and it mirrors the behavior of our totally crooked and amoral uh, <laughs> larger capitalist economic system, right? Which is like people in corporate America are lying, cheating, and stealing constantly, every day, all the time to get what they want. What makes you think that, that like the training ground where all those people go to get access to that system wouldn't start to mirror some of the same behaviors, okay? So like if we want to resolve this problem, I think we also have to talk a little bit about like why this problem exists in the first place, right? Um, and this is the side of the equation that honestly, the social contract I think is fraying at best and has broken uh, <laughs> by many people's perspective around like what is the value of going to college, right? Like we are taught and we tell kids still today, you go because it's gonna give you all this economic opportunity. We go because it's gonna make you live longer and have all these great social outcomes, except that is less and less true for a larger and larger share of the population now. It's certainly very true for a more elite um, slice of the population. People know that this isn't fair, right? And this isn't about opportunity for all. This is a rigged system in many ways. And so I think we're seeing behavior that's indicative of the fact that people know it's a rigged system. So who cares about the rules, right? Um, and that maybe speaks to a larger conversation we need to have. Yeah, I think that's exactly it. I think a lot of these students, especially if they're taking uh, courses that aren't really aligned to what they want to do with their life. So, um, you know, you know, all the other prerequisites that they have to take that might not necessarily be part of their major or whatever. Like, yeah, man, like if, if, if we're presenting college and education generally, even before college, if we're presenting it as a transaction, you submit this, I give you these points and this is your percentage and this is, and then you move on to the next level, then, then why wouldn't they do this? Especially with all the tools at young people's disposal nowadays, man, like they're, there are so many tools at their disposal for cheating, especially when it comes to anything written. Like, you know, uh, uh, there's websites that'll reword stuff for you so that it, it could pass through the plagiarism checks. There are folks who are selling services online to write your essays for you. There's all kinds of stuff there. So if you don't see value in the class, if you don't see value in the college degree, if you really see it as a transaction to get a job, then hell, why not? Especially in this world where everything's on fire and everything's falling apart. And like you said, there's dishonesty everywhere everywhere. So I think here the onus is really on the educators um, for one to build a system that actually uh, helps students see the value of education above and beyond just getting a job. Uh, but secondly, you know, I'm thinking about the college level. A lot of folks who teach courses at the college level, they don't go through the same uh, sort of um, training that we go through in terms of the actual pedagogical practices that are happening in the classroom. So, you know, if I'm sitting in a lecture of like two or 300 students and the person, the professor is just lecturing at us all damn day, I'm not getting much from that. So I am going to be led not led to, but I'm going to consider um, that just copying, cheating, whatever, whatever, just to submit my stuff and get my grade and go on. So uh, as a high school teacher, I'm thinking more in terms of my high school context. I've seen the uptick in so-called academic dishonesty. I don't even know if that's necessarily a great phrase for it, but I've seen an uptick in it with, with cell phones. Cause obviously students could just take a picture of this. And I see students like looking at pictures of like math homework and stuff. And I'm like, you copying someone's words? Like, no, this is the notes. I'm just copying the notes, whatever, whatever, whatever. And there's a lot of that. And I personally have seen it more as a challenge to make sure that I am relying more on authentic assessments, performance assessments, things that can't just be Googled and found and copied or whatever, because otherwise, like, you know, if I just do some mundane work, with students, then I'm going to get a lot of that mundane routine stuff just copied and pasted or whatever um, back. So I think the onus is on us educators to help 
build an education system that helps students engage with it in a more authentic way and not see it as something that can simply be, you know, just, you know, one transaction to another to get to the end, to, to get to the finish line. So yeah, man, interesting stuff here. I don't blame the students. I just, I can't, I don't blame the students, man. We adults have to build a education, education system that does better for kids. So yeah. 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 I, I agree with that, man. I, I think that's an interesting uh, take you just brought up there about the potential benefit that could be buried in this problem of academic dishonesty is like, let's have more richer, authentic performance assessments that can't be cheated on in the conventional sense. Yeah. Right. Um, and I think that actually could be a really great thing hey. <laughs> for what we, what we define success as in education. Right. So maybe buried in this is a silver lining. Who knows? Yeah. Call to action. Something, man. Yeah. 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 All right, Jeff, that's the first grade, a C, you know, college try. What we got for our yeah. second grade? <laughs> second grade, Manuel, is uh, maybe not quite a C. It's a, it's a 48. That is most definitely not a C, Jeff. That is not a C. <laughs> yeah, most definitely well, can, can not Can I submit C. something uh, for extra credit? Can I, can, I, can I take some makeup work home <laughs> over the weekend to get that up? <laughs> Uh, no, you're just going to sit here for the next three months and wallow in your misery with your 48 <laughs> because you should have done better already. And uh, we just want you to feel bad. That's that's what's going to happen. Sounds about right. Sounds about right. Yes. Yes. OK, well, this grade, I will say, is not exactly a 48. It is actually a 48,000 $48, which happens to be the figure below which shamefully, shamefully low figure, below which a family of four in the United States would have to earn on an annual basis in order to qualify for free or reduced price lunch in America's schools, right? And of course, this is our proxy measurement for poverty, which is like, leaves out a whole huge swath of people who are effectively living in some version of poverty um, in this country because of how expensive it is to live in many urban areas, especially. Um, so... This uh, $48,000 um, is a figure that comes to us from an article by Jill Barche in the Heckinger Report. So shout out to Jill. Um, and it is an article looking at a 2017 study by Harvard economist Raj Chetty, which found that many elite colleges, including the, ma the majority of the Ivy League, enroll more students from the top 1% than the bottom 60%. While those numbers tend to not be as stark at flagship state universities, the disparities remain enormous. So to address this, the University of Michigan staged an experiment in 2019 involving 1,800 high school students. All of them qualified for free or reduced price lunch. Their grades were also A's and their average SAT score was 1270, which put them in the top 15% of all test takers in the country. Half of them lived in rural areas and 80% were white. The university randomly mailed 1,200 of those students one of two invitations to apply. One of the invitations offered them a full hail scholarship which is an upfront guarantee of zero tuition if the student was admitted without having to fill out any financial aid forms. The other half received a letter encouraging them to apply, explaining that they would qualify for free tuition if their families made below $65,000 and had less than $50,000 in assets. 
The remaining 600 students didn't receive anything special in the mail, but were tracked as a comparison control group. Now, on the outcome side of this study, fewer than half of the students who got the second invitation, telling them that they would probably qualify for free tuition, applied. That's um, as opposed to 63% of the students who did get the free tuition offer applying. Um, in the end, the upfront guarantee led to a nine percentage point improvement in the rate at which low-income students enrolled in the University of Michigan. So Manuel, fascinating study here um, out of the University of Michigan. Lots of different types of universities across the country are experimenting with these, you know, uh, sort of ways to uh, offer tuition-free college um, to folks who, uh, in particular, are of low economic means. Um, but this is like a really interesting wrinkle about how you make that offer impacting whether people actually apply and whether they come. So um, fascinating stuff here, Manuel. Would love to get your take on this. Yeah, it actually reminds me of our graduation, Jeff, our graduation from our teacher ed program, because I believe that's where Harvard first announced that they are going to um, cover everyone's tuition who's under a certain uh, income threshold. And then a lot of other colleges followed after that. And now we see that at a lot of places, uh, private, quote unquote, elite schools and and non, I guess, elite schools. And here we have the University of Michigan realizing that simply doing that doesn't automatically just like make everything awesome because a lot of times um, the details of that get lost in the noise. And I teach seniors and I know a lot of my seniors apply to schools that have some sort of tuition um, guarantee type program in place based on income and the overwhelming majority of my students qualify. However, like a lot of times they don't realize it or it's mentioned or I mention it or counselors mention it, but it's not like set in stone. So as far as they're concerned, they still, you know, they, they figure there's all these ropes they got to jump through in order to get that. And I think this study to me, it makes a lot of sense. Now I'm, I'm seeing data like here, like boom, they showed it like students when it's real clear up front, go ahead and apply. You're already guaranteed full every full tuition coverage. Then it's like, OK, that that resonates in a way that the whole like you might, depending on this number that your family incomes in and that, that it just doesn't resonate the same in that way. So um, I think. For one, this shows that like communication with students in terms of what uh, financial offerings are there needs to be real direct and real clear. But also it just makes me sad because I think about how many students didn't apply to certain schools because of their concern over the um, financial opportunities um, that might be there for them to pay for it. And just it's just a reminder that like our higher education, our access to higher education is tied so strongly to family income. And it is just so sad to know that certain students simply did not apply because they didn't realize that their income meant that tuition would be covered, or they just did not apply because they didn't think they'd be able to afford it, period. Imagine how many lives could be transformed. Imagine how many traje trajectories could be transformed if we didn't have family income be so inextricably connected to access to higher education. Just imagine how many young people out there, if money just were not a concern at all, would go ahead and shoot for the stars and go. Like when I talk to my seniors time and time and time again, the number one concern they have regarded, regarding college is paying for it. That's the number one concern. And if, if that wasn't there, if that wasn't a concern, just think about how many more students would really embrace this idea of 
pursuing higher education. And it's just just a reminder that our system is so screwed up, man. Mm. Yeah, I, I thought the results here were really fascinating, Manuel, because uh, and one of the professors who was a part of this study, whose name was uh, Susan Dynarski, um, uh, talked in the article about the, the role, as she sees it, of certainty, uh, the role that certainty plays yeah. in people's uh, sort of outcomes in this equation, right? That like, and she gave this analogy, which I thought was really fascinating, which was, hey, if you got a job at, you know, a great job at a new company, and they said they were going to pay you a salary, or they were going to pay you the equivalent in stock options, like, which would you take, right? And almost everyone would be like, of course, I'm taking the salary, because like, I have to pay rent, I have a mortgage, I have, you know, kids to feed, all these other things. Like, Maybe the stock options would be great. Maybe they could potentially even be more lucrative down the road. But like, I have to live my life yeah. with, with predictable, you know, certainty about how I'm going to keep the lights on, right? And I can't just gamble um, with my life. And so, you know, it's maybe not a totally apples to apples comparison, but I think offers a really interesting perspective on this, right? Which is like, the messaging we're sending to kids and families is like, Maybe if you do all this work, it could work out for you. It, it might even be really likely that it works out for you. <laughs> but the difference in terms of how people receive that and how they then make decisions by saying that versus saying like, hey, we got you. It's covered. Do this paperwork. We can't wait till you arrive. Right? Like is, yeah. a, is a totally different message and has a different psychological impact that impacts folks' decision making. Right? And I imagine, Manuel, that that impact might be even greater on folks who are most marginalized or most sort of um, seeing the movement to a competitive four-year college as a stretch for them, or maybe some, you know, something they're unfamiliar with, or they don't maybe have models in their family of folks who've done it before who can kind of show them the path, right? It's an intimidating process. And so this was just fascinating about like the how in terms of implementing these policies is also, you know, very important along with just having the resources there to do this kind of thing. Yeah, man, absolutely. And I'm just thinking about, you know, just both stories, two stories related to higher education here, um, how if we were able to help students access higher education and not worry about paying for it, and if we were able to show them the value of higher education is something more than a mere transaction, man, like, what possibilities would be there for our young people who we are trusting with hopefully building a better world than the world that we have right here, right now. So if we really, really, really valued um, our collective future, we would help students access higher education and have them see the value in it beyond just the transaction that it is to so many folks. But here we are, yeah. nonetheless. Indeed. So, yeah. Indeed. All right, folks, that about does it for this episode's Do Now. Uh, give us your thoughts. You know, feel free to to shoot us a message, hit us up on our socials, and let us know what your thoughts are on this uh, academic dishonesty and this um, messaging around paying for tuition. All right. But up next is our seminar. Stay tuned for a super dope, super dope conversation with two dope guests, which will give us three Minnesota voices for our show today. A whole lot of Minnesota happening. Whole lot. All right. Seminar. That's up next. Stay tuned.
Hey folks, thanks so much for tuning in to All The Above. We really appreciate you. And as you know, All The Above is a small operation. It's just me and just Manuel, that's it. We have no sponsorships, which means we are totally dependent on our amazing audience to help support the show. So here's what you can do. Go to our website, which is aotashow.com support. That's aotashow.com support. There you can find links to everything you can do to support the show. You find all the links to every platform that we're on where you can like, subscribe, follow, make sure you share our show with your whole network. Also, you can donate there. We are on Venmo, we're on Cash App, and most importantly, you can find the link to our Anchor page where you can become a monthly patron. Even a small donation once a month will make a huge difference in helping us continue to produce the show. Lastly, you can find there the link to get your flyest, best, latest, all the above show merch. Okay, all you gotta do is go to aotashow.com support. Thanks, enjoy the rest of the show. All right, folks, welcome to today's seminar. We are very excited to have you here with us today. And we have not one, but two incredible guests who are joining all the above today uh, to dig into a topic that is very close um, to our hearts. And it's been a little while uh, since we have touched on this topic in a seminar. So I'm feeling both excited and very fortunate to have these two brilliant folks with us today to really dig into some issues around uh, educator diversity and pipelines, recruitment and retention um, of educators of color and of course black educators at this very interesting, perhaps precarious time in the history of American um, education. So we have two great guests with us. We have Makisha Nation and James Barnett, both coming to us live from uh, my hometown of the Twin Cities of Minneapolis and St. Paul, Minnesota. Uh, so welcome Makisha, welcome James to all the above. Thank you so much for having us. Yes, we're excited to be here. All right, folks, let me tell you a little bit more about our guests. Uh, Makisha Nation is the executive director of Teach for America's Twin Cities region. With Makisha at the helm since 2017, TFA Twin Cities has provided training, support, and mentorship to teachers and leaders who are committed to reimagining education excellence in Minnesota so that more students learn, lead, and thrive. Makisha has 20 plus years of experience in corporate, government, and nonprofit leadership. She is a graduate of none other than Dartmouth College, where I had the privilege of first meeting her and previously worked for Target and was the executive director for Breakthrough Twin Cities, a nonprofit that prepares under-resourced students for college success. Makisha has served on multiple boards, and she was honored as part of the Minneapolis-St. Paul Business Journal's 40 Under 40 in 2018. Makisha lives in Southwest Minneapolis with her husband, Desmond, and their boys, Desmond III, Marcellus, and Victor. We also have today James Barnett. James is the executive director of Teach Minnesota, a TNTP uh, teaching fellow program and one of the state's first ever alternative teacher licensure programs, which aims to increase the number of teachers of color for high need schools across the state. James was previously TNTP's national leadership coach, and he has held a number of prominent roles in the Twin Cities education landscape. He has served as an assistant principal and principal in residence at KIPP Minnesota, achieve an integration coach 
uh, in White Bear Lake School District and founding principal of Minneapolis College Prep. James was also the program director for TFA Twin Cities regional team over two years, and he has supported new teacher development as a core member advisor and a curriculum specialist for the TFA Summer Institute in Philadelphia. Born in Chicago, but a longtime Twin Cities resident, James is a graduate of St. Olaf College and started his career in education as a seventh grade social studies teacher and TFA core member in Charlotte, North Carolina. Welcome again, uh, Makisha and James, and I'm going to kick it over to Manuel for our first question. Yeah. Minnesota dopeness in the building. Now, I must say the Minnesota bias of the show has gotten a little out of hand here. <laughs> we have three, three educators representing Minnesota and... Um, yeah, yeah, we got to look into that. But thank you so much for taking time out for being here on all of the above to have this conversation about educator diversity. And of course, we've heard the rhetoric for years about the importance of teachers of color and how important they are, not just for students of color, but for white students as well. Yet here we are still looking at almost 80% of the teaching force being white and over half of the principals being white um, at a time when students of color now constitute the majority of students in our school system. So we're wondering if you could share a little bit about, again, the, the, the importance of educator diversity or what you believe might be missing from those conversations about the importance of educator diversity and maybe shed a little light on what the gap between educators of color and students of color um, or uh, students in their, their classrooms might be looking like in Minnesota. And I think we'll uh, go ahead and, and start with Makisha. Yeah, no, I'm happy to talk about that. I think it's, it's good to get clear on the numbers and then it's also good to talk beyond the numbers. So what I can share on a state level is that um, as a state, um, students of color represent close to 30% to a third of our state um, students. Um, but teachers of color only represent about 5%. Then when you get to communities here in the Twin Cities, say like Minneapolis, St. Paul, and some of the surrounding suburbs, um, in, in, our, um, in our Twin Cities type communities, about 67% uh, of the students are students of color. So you're getting close to like the high 60s, almost 70% students of color. And yet the teaching workforce is only about 16 to 17% um, teachers of color. So it's important for us to understand that that difference exists and it's been longstanding and probably a, a process that's been decades in the making. Um, and then I think it's important for us really to think about when we talk about diversity, what does that truly mean for us? So, um, you know, we want to see more Black educators. We want to see more educators from Latinx background. We want to see more um, educated, educators from an Asian American background, mom background in particular. Um, we think about the East African community that's really big here in Minnesota as well, um, and our Native and Indigenous educators. Um, the, the thing, the research has shown that having uh, teachers from diverse background not only um, raises the bar for black students and other students of color, but for white students as well. Um, and predominantly one of the main things that comes out is that we set a high bar for expectations for our kids um, compared to our white counterparts usually. And that we also do a, a strong job of partnering with our families. Now that doesn't mean that white educators can't develop cultural fluency. That doesn't mean that with um, the right kind of training and professional development, they, they won't be able to do that as well. But it, there's something different about having a teacher of color in the classroom that translates to attendance, to engagement, to student outcomes. And so I think it's really important for us to understand that. And then I'd also say um, it's really important to note that like just having somebody from a diverse background is not the only solution. You actually have to have a culture in your school, in your building, in your system that allows those teachers and leaders to thrive. And the, the same 
things that are um, counteracting a positive culture for students are also impacting our educators. And so it's important to know that that diversity is going to come with lots of conversations around your curriculum, around your discipline practice, around all these other things that impact your students. And that's why it's so important to think about how do you create an inclusive teaching workforce that better represents your students? Yeah, I guess I can jump in there. Makisha uh, touched on a lot of great points. Um, you know, as a former school leader at, at both the high school and middle school level, um, you know, I, I, I was really, I, I have a lot of experience uh, seeing the implications of, of, of a lack of a teacher diversity in schools uh, in a number of ways. Um, one of the things that uh, I spent so much of my time, when I think about this, so much of my time reflecting on is when there is this incredible value of uh, this, this idea of a hometown hero being true in your school setting, right? Everyone can look across, a student can look up in the front of the room and feel like, hey, this person who, who looks like me, uh, um, I, I feel like they understand me. I'm inspired, they, I'm inspired by, by the role they're playing in my life right now. Um, uh, they also serve the role as a trusted adult. When you think about ways that, you know, schools are, are designed, you know, we're designed, to, we're designed to push kids beyond their comfort zones, challenge them to, to think differently, encourage them to take risks. Uh, uh, that happens a lot easier when there's someone in the space that you feel you can trust. And, and that often in that first line of trust for students is defined by how you show up in the space. Do you look like me? Do we share? Are there some things that I can look at you or that I can share with you that you will understand uh, beyond just the scope of this classroom? Um, uh, the other thing that, that's important too when we think about teacher diversity in, a, in this critical space it's also, you know, some of the other challenges we have in school when we think about student discipline and a lot of the disproportionalities that form, a lot of those things, uh, in my opinion, as a former school leader, uh, exist along these lines of race, which is often signaling the fact that how do we build more advocacy throughout the system so that when issues come up with students and they feel like their education is being disrupted by some bit of circumstances, there are other people in the building who can advocate for me, who are at that influencing and decision-making level. Um, I, th I think that's often overlooked. Uh, you know, there, there, again, there's certainly instructional value, but then there's also, again, how do you make this school welcoming, you know, so that kids are feeling that, you know, if, if there is a moment where I need to be uh, corrected or, or improve, uh, uh, I learn a lesson, I can feel like somebody in the space is also someone who can be an advocate for me. Um, um, there's also this important thing that, you know, I worked at a, a school district that was predominantly white, and White Bear Lake area schools. And uh, um, one of the things that I, I spoke often about to the district level folks and principals uh, and my colleagues throughout the district is that it's important for white students to learn this cross-cultural competency uh, um, in a setting where, where it's, it's a lower stakes, but they are also willing to learn, right? If you think about a school environment, that's the, it's a learning environment they're valuing the the insight of the per, the person who's 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 um, heading the space, and and I saw as a black male working in these school settings, white students entertain ideas or, or have conversations and dialogues in a safe space, which they consider the school to be, amongst uh, as I sat side by side with their white teachers, and their white teachers endorse my perspectives uh, in schools where the students were predominantly students of color to have a black school leader endorse the perspective of a white teacher and say, you know, you should, you should listen to this, this teacher, this teacher has your best interest in mind. That's all important for that child development and all contributes to this idea of why we need a diverse 
teaching core. Um, one of the things I'll, I'll end with as well is that the hardest thing about this idea of lack of diversity is that we, we, we start to accept things as they are. We start to realize it's just how things, you know, it's just how it's going to be. And, and what, I, what I fear the most is that we stop fighting for this effort. So uh, as, much as, it, it, as, as much as we can do to continue to bring attention and awareness to the issue is as important as any progress we make so that we stop, we do not stop fighting the fight, but instead we try to get more intentional about the strategies we use and we promote what's effective and we spend less time on what's ineffective. Yeah, I, I really appreciate what both of you are saying there regarding um, just the, the kind of layers uh, to the to this conversation about the importance of educator diversity. You know, that there there is a numbers issue and that the numbers issue is, of course, important to track and be aware of and, and work to close those gaps. And at the same time, this isn't purely a matter of, of representation or purely a matter of numbers. This is also about mindsets, beliefs, systems, policies, etc. cetera. Um, so uh, yeah. thank you so much for, for speaking to that. Um, to I'll on. add one more thing there, just sure. because something that's uh, pretty important also is that there, I think the progress we make here is when everyone starts to see the value of, the, of, the, of a diverse space and, and realizing that uh, if I am of, you know, if I'm the white majority and my kids do not have this diverse perspective, that's, that's my student being underserved. You know, if we can, if we can encourage that mindset and help see people see that, that as, a, as a problem mindset or the challenge circumstance. And I, I think that's where we see a lot of the progress being made. But right now, uh, that's, that's not part of the conversation. Mm. Yeah, such an important point there. Thank you. Uh, James, for sure. Um, uh, moving to our next question, uh, you know, as as a kid who grew up uh, in Minnesota in the in that era where people, you know, people like Chris Rock made jokes that there's the only black people in Minnesota were Prince and Kirby Puckett, uh, but I could look around and see that that was not really the case. Um, you know, I think nationally, some people might look at this issue and say, like, well, maybe this state of Minnesota isn't the first place that comes to mind when we are talking about issues of educator diversity. Um, and so really excited to have you both here today to kind of pull back the curtain on this um, issue in your context. And wondering if you can share a little bit about how does your work uh, with TFA and with uh, Teach Minnesota, uh, how is it taking shape? How is it impacting you know, policy and practice at a, at a local level where you are? And uh, what, if anything, are some things we might be able to kind of surface and learn from um, about what you all are working on in Minnesota that may have implications even nationally for other uh, states or districts to consider as well? And uh, Makisha, maybe I'll kick it to you first. Yeah, I love that you said that, Jeff, because um, as you know, you know, as a Dartmouth alum, I met my husband there and we originally moved to Minnesota in 2009 for his job at Medtronic. And I remember being like, Minnesota, do I know anyone? Like, I, I definitely know folks in Chicago. And then I go west. And I remember having that same reservation. You know, what is it going to be like to be a person of color in this community? Um, you know, people often on the, on the coast don't think of Minnesota as a very diverse place. But what I fell in love with here was just the diversity of our student body and our families. There's so many unique cultures in our state. There's a vibrant Hmong community. There's a vibrant East African community. There's a Rondo neighborhood in St. Paul with historic Black legacies of families that have been here five, six generations. 
Um, and I think a lot of that story doesn't get told. There's a significant indigenous community, native community, that was the original, um, uh, the original lands are, are those, those belongs to those tribes. And those communities are still here. Not, they're not relics of the past or some um, history book footnote, but vibrant communities that are here, um, both in um, the northern part of the state, throughout the state, and also in the urban core centers of the state as well. And I think for me, um, what first helped me understand that was when I came in and I was doing youth development work and seeing just how incredible our students were and yet how easy it was for students to fall through the cracks. You know, I had an amazing student that was um, uh, Somali and she was in an academic enrichment program with our year round out of school time program. She still wasn't being mainstreamed, even though she'd been in the country four or five years. Right. And so what happens when you have the opportunity to understand the diversity of your students, the experiences that they have, you start to understand how the system is not serving or meeting their needs. And then when you're educating teachers about that work, which we do at Teach for America, it helps teachers identify opportunities to break down those barriers and those gaps of services, meet students where they are and help them grow their confidence and grow their academic ability and think about not just where they're going to be in third grade or fourth grade, but where they're going to be when they hit 12th grade and go on to their futures. And so my work at Teach for America has really been grounded in that, you know, Teach for America's mission at its course to make sure all students have access to an excellent education. Uh, and that has been a really important aspect of our work in terms of recruiting folks that are from our community. Um, we've had a third to 45% uh, of our teachers be teachers of color in a state that I just told you was 5%, right? And then we also do deep work in terms of rigorous um, high belief and expectations in our students, making sure our students feel like um, they belong, that they're reflected in the curriculum. And then also thinking about what are the desires and aspirations of our students and families and how are we incorporating that into the lessons that students will get across their classroom. One of the biggest things that came up for me when I came into my role in 2017 was just the cost to licensure in the state. The fact that it was very complicated, very expensive. It was almost the third highest out of all the places where TFA operates. And we've had lots of incredible university partners in that space, but not just for TFA core members, but for other educators or aspiring educators of color, it was just too expensive. They're, when they had to do student teaching, they weren't going to be paid. If you were trying to change your career, it was almost like economically not feasible for you to enter the classroom. And so five years ago, I started looking around and trying to learn from other places across the country and was really excited when I got connected with organizations like TNTP um, to really think about how could you create a pathway into education that created a robust on-ramp for folks that was equitable in terms of the learning and instruction and the quality that you were getting, but more affordable and more conducive to um, how teachers can learn and support each other and be in community in doing that work. And so I was really excited um, when I uh, started working with the team at TNTP and um, they started working with our state legislature and working with our professional education license standard board to actually come to Minnesota. So James's program that he's that they're launching is the first time ever a TNT program has been um, doing initial licensure in special education and elementary education in the state. And we are part of a cohort of a, a couple of other leaders that are looking at more affordable pathways that are responsive to the needs of early stage teachers and more responsive to the needs of the schools where those teachers are then going to go on and teach and lead. So, you know, 
um, have a great deal of respect for the work that TP has. And when they landed James as the executive director, I was really excited because I knew him both from his work as a school leader in the community, but just as someone who I know deeply believes in this, in this work and the diversity of educators and making sure white educators have a strong cultural understanding as well. Yeah, there, there's so uh, well said. And, and it's, it's funny because, you know, like Lakeisha said, I met, um, you know, I, I'm someone who moved to the Twin Cities from Chicago as a young as a young kid. So I, I'm not from here originally, but I spent, you know, middle school, high school and I went to college in the state. And uh, so I'm someone who, rec- you know, grew up in the diversity and contributed to the diversity of the state. Right. So as a lot of people looked over the state as being. Uh, you know, a place that's predominantly white and full of farms. You know, I, I again also knew a different story, and uh, but I've also seen, which is interesting, this uh, um, you know the diversity that comes to the state by way of, of a lot of opportunity. Right, you think about folks that come for like Makisha's husband, husband, and they you know the the Fortune five hundreds that we have here that are great career opportunities. We have a. a a large, um, uh, robust network of nonprofits serving uh, in all in all areas, um, uh, and that's how you know I met Nikisha through a friend of mine who was also a transplant, is what we call them, uh, uh, transplant to Minnesota. Um, but what we get excited about is that because we have so many people that move to Minnesota and and are are witnessing this experience firsthand as to where a lot of the the challenges and the um, um, the the um, the challenges and the uh, um, disproportionalities that show up in all of our these essential spaces like schools and healthcare, homelessness, things of that nature, they bring this this they develop immediately this passion and desire to do something about it. Right? How do I jump in and, and get on the ground and and contribute a, a, an alternative perspective? Uh, you know, try to show you know what's possible if we if we do things a little bit differently. Um, when it pertains to schools and and our work in TNTP and 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 providing the teachers, yes, like Makisha said, you know we we benefited from being able to break through and creating an alternative licensure pathway that directly creates a space and a, uh, an opportunity for teachers who are or individuals who are right for schools, right for the classroom to have access to the classrooms. Right now, we are where we have those opportunities available in special education elementary. But what's also important for us that we've learned is that we have to do this in a way where we can start to have our teachers be successful so that they start to change the narrative of what's possible for kids, right? If we if we just think about getting folks in the classroom, that sounds like we're just trying to, you know, fill a need because we, we're short on staff. But what, there's this additional goal, it is, which is to impact kids' lives in a way that inspires folks to think and believe and, and be re-inspired really about what's possible for kids. You know, what 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 is the impact a teacher can have on a student's life if they are um, passionate, willing to to do whatever it takes and uh, build relationships, um, uh, be intentional about responding to the diverse needs in the classroom and building skill uh, throughout their tenure in the classroom. You know, if we if we can have that additional impact and start to have other people th- re- be re-inspired about what's possible for kids. I think that's that's an additional goal that we have for ourselves. And ad- in addition to that as well, uh, we we want to shift the conversations to start thinking about impact. You know, uh, again, getting getting kids in the class or getting teachers in the classroom is one thing, but we want teachers to be impactful and uh, having a positive impact in the lives of kids. And and that's really the work of TNTP. In that, you know, we we are a research organization also. 
So while we're doing the work, we're intentionally reflecting on, on our impact and, and what, what's been true of best practice. Uh, so we do, again, less of what doesn't work and more of what does. And we share that. You know, we, we publish research. Um, often we are intentional about sharing our best practice so that uh, all folks that are, are willing to partner with us and engage with us have access to the latest and greatest and, and what we know is working for kids. Um, what's also beautiful about the partnership uh, with Teach for America as well is that, you know, it's important for us to continue to build like-minded or relationships with like-minded organizations because we know that, you know, we, us alone can't figure it out. The, the two of us alone can't figure it out. But how do we, we inspire more people to get excited about fighting this fight and making this the effort that they see worthy of their time? Um, you know, the, the last thing I'll say that's, that's been, that we've been excited about with our work and the impact it's been having on a state level is that we, we are also, our, our program, reception to our program has been such that we've been able to get charter, traditional public schools and charter schools to partner with us and, uh, uh, and, and be willing to accept and, and hire our teachers, our teacher fellows is what we call them, uh, hire teacher fellows. And the reason why that's important is because we're also seeing schools make a particular investment in teachers and, and in developing those teachers so that they are right for that school over time, right? We, we wanna get folks into school settings that uh, uh, they're the right fit for that school, whether it be their, their own personal mission, vision and values, align with the school or they, they are from that community or they have a deep interest in uh, uh, serving the needs of students that are in that community. Um, that's important for us and our, our school placement process uh, really, really centers around that. So not only do we create the access to the classroom, we're intentionally trying to be responsive to fit and also make sure that we are licensing folks so that over the duration of their time in the classroom, they're building skills for them to have a successful tenure as an educator. Yeah, yeah. So I'm hearing a lot of dopeness. I'm hearing a lot of great work that you are both doing and that Minnesota dopeness is being very well represented here. And yeah. both of you, uh, you know, so much, I, I appreciate what y'all are saying. And I also know that you are each located in Minneapolis, which had a very contentious strike recently. And one of the issues in that strike was uh, around retaining educators of color who are already, already in the classroom doing the work. And we're wondering what your thoughts are about the agreement that was eventually reached between the union and the school district, specifically as it pertains to recruiting and retaining educators of color. And, um, what policies maybe were not included in that agreement that you think still need to be um, worked on? Yeah, I appreciate this question because um, oftentimes the biggest thing I think is important to, for us to think about is like the leadership that's needed for this moment doesn't stop now that an agreement's been put in place, right? And so I take a step back from this and say, you know, it's not ideal to have close to 30,000 students out of school for almost three weeks, right? And I think there's a way that the conversation, the rhetoric around a teacher strike pits teachers against administrators, parents against teachers, and students in the middle trying to figure out, you know, how am I going to get the safety and the learning that school usually provides during a difficult time like a teacher strike? And I think it's important for me because, you know, at Teach for America, we have um, alums, there's about 900 alums that have done the TFA program that are in the Twin Cities, 500 of whom are still in school-based roles, right? So when a teacher strike happens, 
There are folks in our network that are administrators that are working in district offices. There's folks in our network that are teachers. There are folks in our network that are parents. So I get a, a, a really robust perspective on the ins and outs of that experience. And then, you know, working in community with other educational organizations, I get that as well. And I would say one thing I need us to start doing is talking about the challenges and the, um, the conditions in our system that are putting us at odds with each other, even when at the end of the day, we want to see students learning and thriving in our community. I know how difficult it has been for teachers over the last two years with the global pandemic, with the ongoing racial reckoning in our community following the murder of George, George Floyd and Derek Chauvin trial. There has been a lot happening in our system and a lot of additional stressors and challenges that teachers and administrators have had to bear. And so I know that there's things that we want to make sure that teachers experience in terms of their professional development, in terms of their salary and their support. And at the same time, I know it's not ideal when we have situations where kids can't go into school and learn and families are put in this place of yet another disruption on top of the disruption from COVID. Um, it's important for us to acknowledge that and not lose sight of that because the uh, agreement has been made. We still need to look at things like, is there enough funding coming for special education to our communities? Is there enough resources when we're thinking about supporting students from the, um, for English language development? There's a lot of tension that happens at the between the district and the union that some of the factors at the state and the federal level actually are influencing why those arguments uh, 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 dissolve or, or why those tension points come up. And we need as a community to talk about what is the level of funding and engagement that we want to see to have a high quality education system across our communities, not in certain areas where there's more affluence or more power or more influence, but across all of our communities. And I think that's something that's really important to look at when it pertains to the strike or when it pertains to ongoing tensions that exist when we are not seeing the needs of teachers or students being adequately met by our system. Now, as, as when it comes to the protections for teachers of color, I think it's important to note like districts that have been leading the way in that, um, those protections were in place in Robbinsdale um, and in St. Louis Park community before. So I think it's great that um, Minneapolis is now in a place where it's not just in a memorandum of understanding, but it's actually in the actual agreement language. Um, and I think the devil's gonna be in the details in terms of how that gets implemented. But I do think it's important for us, anytime there's a budget crisis or a financial constraint, that those teachers of color that we have been working so hard to recruit are not the first ones to get fired in excess. That that's not stabilizing to our communities. It's not stabilizing to the efforts that have been put in place to recruit, retain, and attract those teachers. And so I'm grateful that that language is there and I want to make sure that when we interpret that language, when things come up, when those hard moments come up three or four years from now, that we're thinking about that language and what it means in terms of our values and what it means in terms of how we make decisions at a district and engage both family perspective, leaders perspective, and the union's perspective in those conversations. It's going to be a difficult couple of years when we think about navigating out of COVID, and there are going to be tough choices that are going to be have to be made at the school board, the superintendent, and administrator level, and they're going to want to make sure they're including the voice of teachers and families and students in that. So it's good to kind of feel that immediate relief. Kids are back in school, but the, the issues are still there in terms of the long-term um, tension in, in our, our education system and things that we need to be working on holistically as a community to address. Yeah, this is this this has been a difficult time. I, um, you know, as a person who you know, I'm a new father. I have a two year old and a, a two week old. 
And, uh, you know, I, I recognized that, you know, two years ago, my job got infinitely harder when I became a father, right? I thought I was deeply passionate about education and kids. Uh, uh, and I love kids as much as I could love, you know, that weren't my own. Um, and then I realized, you know, I have my own kids and I realized that they have to somehow navigate and, and we as a family have to somehow navigate an education system that, that, that odds are not in our favor, right? Um, and when we think about the time that we are in with, with, with the teacher strike and, and a lot of the negotiation uh, negotiations, you know, what's hard about it is that you, what, what I, as a, I'm a consensus builder by nature, you know, that's always been how I try to lead. And when I see things like this, that, that what, what's fearful is kind of how Makisha laid it out earlier is that all of a sudden no one's on the, you know, no one's on the same team, right? You, you're, you're, everyone is sort of looking out what's important for them. Uh, and, and I understand that you need the conditions, the right conditions to do their work well and in, in an enduring fashion. But the fear of that is, is this idea that someone gets left out, right? If you, if you, if you aren't able to effectively lobby for yourself, you, you, your, your priorities are left off the table. Um, uh, and as a result, whatever the agreement is that carries forward, it's not, it's not all encompassing, right? So you, as a, as a, again, as a former school leader, I've been in spaces where I've had to make decisions and I've seen, well, gosh, this department is really going to get the short end of this. And how do I, how do I re-inspire them and encourage them to stay close to the work so that they still see themselves as an essential part of this team? That's a hard thing to do. And that's, that's, the, that's the, the work that's at hand right now. My confidence that we can do that or that, that Minneapolis can do that, I guess, is high if, if, if kids are at the center, right? If you can somehow help everyone understand how their role impact kids and, and as a result, they're going to have the resources and the time that they need uh, to do their job well. Um, uh, we, can, we, can see, we can see promising outcomes there and sustain, sustain, um, uh, uh, sustain progress and whatever this negotiation amounts to, it's something that can endure over the test of time. The, the, as far as some of the things that were agreed in there that I think that, that should be acknowledged, you know, one of the hardest things that I see as a school leader and as a person in this community is that, that the, this idea of the, the, first, the last in, first out, right? That, that the implication of that is always tricky because, again, if you look at the layers of how this thing plays out, you know, the, the more senior ex and experienced teachers are, are given priority over job openings and they somehow... There's been all sorts of research and documentaries that talk about the teacher shuffle and how, you know, they find their ways to the best schools and the newer teachers that most at least experienced or the least effective find their ways into the uh, schools that are uh, with the greatest need. And the, the concern I always have is that how do we protect the schools that have the hardest job so that we keep people in the building so that they can get better at doing that work, right, and meeting those challenging needs? I think I think that conversation that that's been had in negotiations is probably the conversation that I'm that I'm uh, most uh, compelled by, and I think is most essential to progress that to, that will contribute to the progress that needs to be made. Protect the schools that that have the greatest need, the hardest circum or the, the the toughest conditions, and protect the people that are willing to do that work, get better at that work, with the desires of doing that work well and changing that narrative. Um, I think that I think that's critical. The other thing I would say about this as well is that we have to start to be more intentional about how we value teachers, and not just from a place of you know are they important to the work, but but what really what 
you know, how do we how do we ensure that teachers have all of their necessities taken care of so that they can be committed to the work, right? The 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 thing that always breaks my heart when you hear these stories about teachers that are, you know, having to leave a which is already a difficult nine to five and or a seven to four or whatever the job is to go and, and wait tables a few days a week and they are working on the weekends uh in a in another job just to just to pay their bills. That that's the conversation. I want us to get past that because the respect that our teachers need and is is to be able to say, here here is a, a salary or here's an income that allows you to live a balanced, healthy life where you can not have to worry about all of your necessities being taken care of, but you can show up as your best self to do the work. Um, and we can't we can't overlook that. And I think so. The conversation around pay and uh, uh, making sure that we're keeping up with uh, uh, paying teachers what they need. And we know they're underpaid. It's, it's uh, uh, I don't know, there's, I don't know how anyone really refutes that, but the teachers are underpaid. But that's another important part of this conversation. So protecting schools that have the greatest need so that teachers are able to, you know, the people, the teachers and educators that are, that are committed to serving those schools can serve them faithfully without fear of losing their job. And also making sure people have what they need to do the job well. And that, and that means having their, the, the money they need to take care of their families and and not have to worry about their necessities and spreading their time thin over uh, uh, over and beyond you know the time they have to put into the classroom. Yeah, so so many uh, pearls of wisdom that you uh, both shared in there, and um, really just interesting to hear your perspective uh, coming out of. Um, probably one of the more, uh, you know, explosive or um, or certainly uh, controversial uh, engagements between te- a teacher union and a district, right? Um, and of course, the impact of, of state funding on that, um, on this issue. So really great to hear your perspective there. We are, um, we're coming up on the end of our time here. So we just have a few minutes left, but I, I do want to squeeze in um, our final question for you, which is, uh, you know, we, we are existing at this very kind of complex, controversial time in uh, in education, where there are attacks happening against uh, public schools and against the um, the kind of honest teaching of history and issues of identity and race um, and gender and other aspects of identity in the classroom in numerous states across the country, and I'm wondering if. Through the lens of this topic of the importance of educator diversity, um, if you can also share with us, like, how do you square uh, kind of the push for the importance of educator diversity at the same time as we're seeing numerous states essentially say, you know, educators have to check their integrity and their identity at the door, right? And we, and we can't. We can't actually bring that identity into the classroom. Um, so I would love to hear just briefly your perspective on how should we respond uh, you know, to this issue at the same time as, as we are trying to diversify uh, the, the educator force precisely because we want a richer spectrum of identities present in the classroom. So I uh, would love to hear your thoughts briefly, please. Yeah. I mean, I, I love that you've asked this question because I think it goes to the core of so many things that are happening in our community and have been occurring for the past uh, few years. And it's, it's built upon a system that has had a lot of challenges um, historically. So when I think about our work at Teach for America in particular, 
um, I think it's important for us to understand that diversity, equity, and inclusion can only exi- can't only exist in the number and the representation of the people that are doing the work, but it has to show up in your curriculum. It has to show up in your policies. It has to show up in your practices. So we talk a lot about how um, at Teach for America, we focus on culturally responsive pedagogy. And a lot of times people don't understand what that means. So let me simplify it for, for, for our audience. It's like, we're going to have high expectations for kids for all kids from all different backgrounds, right? We're gonna understand what it means to make sure those students are learning and they're thriving. And they also have a sense of belonging in their community. I always find it interesting that folks are like, we don't wanna talk about diversity. We don't talk about, wanna talk about gender, sexuality. We don't wanna talk about these things in the classroom, but those things are present in our classroom because they're present for our students. When you look at how students of color are feeling about their learning environment, when you look at how GLBTQ students are feeling in terms of suicide rates and some of the things that students are facing, we can't just ignore these issues. We can't just ignore these challenges. And there's a way that we can tap into that the work we do to develop teachers to actually understand how do you create the conditions in your classroom for folks to engage in rigorous curriculum, but also do that in a way that allows them to understand the history and the context for the community that they're living in and their aspirations of what they want the future to look like. Um, I think about the benefit that that has for all students to have a deeper cultural perspective, a, a, a deeper social conscious and awareness in their classroom in addition to the academic pieces that we're doing. And I've seen that pay dividends in terms of how our teachers sew up for our students, the programs that they bring into their schools, the way families can be a part of telling that story. Um, You know, one of my teachers in St. Paul had Somali leaders come into the classroom virtually when we were in distance learning that were doctors and engineers and because there's often a narrative about what it means to be from an immigrant community. And we wanted our students to see entrepreneurs. We wanted students to see you can still hold on to your culture, your language, what makes you who you are, and you can still be successful. And that is often the story that's not being told. I think it's important to be um, to tell that story of history, but also do it from a perspective that doesn't just talk about the oppression or the injustice, but also talks about the talent, the skills, the expertise, those role models for learning and leadership, in addition to the challenges and the fight that we had to go to, had to endure to even just get a seat at the table. And at the end of the day, I want my students being able to think about their own leadership and their knowledge and what they want to do in their lives against that backdrop of our history and our culture as a nation. Yeah, I, uh, I, I love everything about what Makisha said that, that, you know, I, I approach this conversation again, Trish, with this idea of, of trying to get clear on, you know, what's the goal, right, um, here. And as a, as a you know, as, a, as educators, as people that are, are trying to inspire folks to and, and prepare folks to reach their full potential, uh, how do we get clear on what is necessary to do that, right? Um, Reaching your full potential may mean that you are going into a space where you are going to face systemic challenges. And, and how do we help someone understand the history of that? That's, that's essential. Um, how do we help by understanding the system or history, uh, uh, you start to build the skill to navigate and you become uh, inspiration to others as, as to how to be successful in, in challenged environments. Um, you know, I, I'm a firm believer that uh, you know, you you can't make progress without without empathy and understanding. And I don't think you can build empathy and understanding without without telling the you know 
telling the telling the story. You know, they're, they're, they're the story of hardship, yes, but the story of prominence and perseverance, and the fact that some of the the conditions that are true for for some are not that are not true for others. And the path to success may have been had a few more hurdles in in, in place for some individuals over others. So I think I think we have to tell that from a place of empathy and understanding and celebrate the achievements of people that, that have been successful um, uh, as they on that journey. Um, you know, I, I, I also am, am a proponent of the culture responsive uh, uh, or culturally relevant pedagogy and the idea that we, we do have to look at it in a triangulated fashion. You know, we're talking about cultural competency, yes, we're also talking about socio-political consciousness. We're also talking about academic achievement. We we can't limit ourselves to just thinking about one one implication because they, because it's it's much more complex than that. And again, you can't encourage the progress without telling the story and 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 ultimately building that empathy so that everyone becomes a fan of each other's story, a steward of each other's story, and invested in one another. Um, I, I I get concerned as an educator when you think about you know, to, to the question of, you know, how do you do that? How do you encourage and promote diversity in the classroom when you're potentially limiting, you know, what, what, what topics, what diverse topics can be discussed? Uh, that, that is, that is a, that, that's an incredibly concerning uh, problem. And if we don't get that right, we can't, we can't encourage the diversity and celebrate the people that in the space and have true inclusion. If we, if we can't celebrate their stories and, and, and allow their stories of prominence uh, perseverance and, and achievement to to inspire other kids that, that are filling that space. I think we did, I think it's a it's a uh, I personally think it's impossible and there's a ton of dissonance there. Uh, uh, and we have to be excited about again celebrating over suppression, right? Acknowledging and building empathy over uh, um, um, accepting the prevailing narrative of this is just how it's been or it's no one's fault. You know, I think that's problematic thinking. Um, but in the spirit of education, you know, there, there's also this idea of just inspiring hope and optimism. And, uh, and I don't think you can do that without, again, telling those stories. So uh, um, I, I have a lot of personal thoughts about it, but I think at the end of the day, this is one of those things where, where there's a ton of dissonance for me. And we just have to be excited about the idea of, of allowing individuals to show up their true selves, have true inclusion, and allow that to, to be the, the image that our students see so that they can, again, ultimately reach their full potential. Yeah. Wow. Well, so much to think about there and uh, so much wisdom on a very important central issue in our profession, which I'm sure we will uh, continue to touch on um, in the coming uh, months and years here on All the Above. Uh, I want to thank our two amazing guests today uh, who have joined us to share their thoughts and experiences. Uh, Makisha Nation, Executive Director of Teach for America Twin Cities, and James Barnett, Executive Director of Teach Minnesota, a TNTP Teaching Fellows Program. Uh, thank you both for joining us today on All the Above. Uh, it was great to have you here. Thank you. Thank you. All right, folks, that is it for today's seminar. Thanks for joining us, but stick around because next up is our class dismissed. All right, folks, we've reached that point in the episode where we like to give shout outs to folks doing wonderful, wonderful things in the world of education. Jeff, it's class dismissed time. Who are we shouting out today? 
Well, Manuel, today we got probably the biggest possible shout out that we could ever give uh, <laughs> on, on a show like ours. Yeah. Uh, it is, it is, I don't know if it's technically still Teacher Appreciation Week or if that ended yesterday. Does it carry over into the weekend, Manuel? Uh, but <laughs> if our calendaring and timing is correct on the release of this episode, today will be the Saturday right after. Uh, the beauty and wondrous celebration that is National Teacher Appreciation Week. And we hope that everybody who's listening to this, uh, this episode or watching this episode, first of all, had an amazing Teacher Appreciation Week if you are a teacher or anyone who works at a school site. Um, but also, you know, we just got to say, man, like, especially in this time, coming off these last couple of years of what has happened in education, Everybody out there needs to stop what you're doing right now. Go hug a teacher or stand six feet apart from a teacher and Wakanda salute a teacher. <laughs> but show some love to all of the teachers out here in the United States of America and abroad for that matter, um, who have just continued to do amazing work supporting the growth, the development, the learning, um, the joy of young people in this country. And um, we have seen in so many ways the importance um, of having great teachers um, in each and every classroom in this country. And so uh, all of the things that happened uh, over Teacher Appreciation Week, the free cups of coffee, the little kitschy things <laughs> in the mailbox in the office, the shout outs at the assembly, the handwritten notes from the, you know, first graders that went home, you know, to uh, <laughs> for parents to sign or all that kind of stuff, man, is just beautiful. And um, I hope that we take the, the love that we have for educators, for teachers um, this week. And remember that we need that to kind of continue here, right? That like, it's been a tough couple of years and um, we have seen in stark detail how important, how critical teachers are to everything in our society, right? To caring for the next generation, to raising young people, to allowing parents to be sane and go to work themselves, um, all of that and many, many things in between. So happy Teacher Appreciation Week, everybody. Uh, love, props, and respect to all the teachers out there doing great work. Yeah. Well said, Jeff. Well said, Mr. Super Duper, principal, leader, man. Um, Appreciate the love and shout out to all my fellow classroom teachers out there. And I'm just reminded of the, the one or two days early in the pandemic when it felt like the nation was actually appreciating teachers and the work that teachers do when the whole nation witnessed us dramatically um, reinvent our practice uh, to respond to the moment. And those are nice. That was a nice day or two of real, true appreciation. And now, we're being cast in a lot of areas of the country as some kind of like woke mob groomer type folks. Mm. And it's just a- Don't forget cultural Marxists. Yes, uh, reverse racist, yes. cultural Marxists, <laughs> all that. So uh, yeah, man, yeah, man. Don't let them dim your light, folks. You're doing great work. We love y'all, we appreciate y'all. And uh, thanks again for hanging out with us here on All the Above, aotashow.com for all the previous episodes and links and all that good stuff. We do appreciate y'all. We really do hope everybody um, has a, a, a wonderful rest of your weekend or rest of your week if you're listening or watching this during the week. All right. And we will see you next time. <laughs>